Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. This episode of the podcast is about the January 6th committee. But just as we had finished recording it, the news dropped that the Supreme Court had, as expected, overturned Roe v. Wade. So I thought it'd be really helpful before getting into the January 6th discussion to talk to Mian Ridge, who covers abortion for The Economist. Mian, what are your thoughts? We expected this to happen. It has happened, but it still feels momentous. It does. And even though we were given fair warning by the leaked draft, which was published on May the 2nd, some people, I think a lot of people had hoped that it would be softened somewhat and it doesn't appear to have been. Yes, it shares the same no-holds-barred approach to this issue that the draft did. I mean, I was struck reading it quickly very early on. There's a comparison of Roe v. Wade to Plessy v. Ferguson, which of course was the Supreme Court decision in 1896, which held that racial segregation was constitutional. Samuel Alito's opinion calls Roe, as his draft opinion did, egregiously wrong, and it criticises the notion that abortion was ever thought to be a fundamental constitutional right protected under the 14th Amendment's prohibition on states depriving any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. And of course, that raises the question that those other rights guaranteed by the Supreme Court, which include contraception and gay marriage, might also now be under threat because those same grounds apply. Yes, that's right. And it's going to be very interesting slash alarming to see what happens on that front. Mian, I wanted your thoughts quickly on what the practical implications of overturning Roe are. I mean, I know you've spent a lot of time talking to abortion providers and also talking to people who are on the pro-life side of this debate. What will happen next? So in terms of the practical effects for women who live in states with trigger laws, of which there are 13, broadly speaking, within 30 days, abortion will be banned in those states. Interesting to see what happens in states that don't have trigger laws, but have expressed an interest in various ways in banning abortion will do, whether there'll be some sort of political assessment of the damage that abortion bans will do in the midterms. But I think that it's correct that, broadly speaking, in in half America, the right to abortion will be completely curtailed, if not severely limited, which is a huge change. And so, Mian, in lots of those states that have trigger laws, which will now come into effect, it's already extremely hard for women to get access to abortion. So how much does the decision change things in practice for women in those states? We can certainly say a lot, but I I think it's very difficult to put a number on it, even though some people have tried to do that, simply because we don't know what abortion providers in liberal states will do. Will they suddenly open up abortion clinics on the borders of states that have banned abortion? Will there be a huge effort to get abortion medication into those states, possibly even in the form of women keeping it at home so that if they get pregnant, they can take the medication immediately. I think there's going to be a massive ramp up in efforts, including for improving contraception, which I'm sure the Biden administration will have a hand in, that that we can't anticipate till it happens, but it'll be very interesting to see what happens. And in terms of the pro-life movement, I think the war is not over at all. This is a new front that's now opening in America's abortion 
war, there will be an effort to, to introduce a federal national ban on abortion. Brett Kavanaugh wrote something this morning saying that the Constitution is neutral on abortion. So it, it, although it doesn't allow for an abortion law, it also doesn't allow for an abortion ban. So there's going to be lots of debate about that, I think. But certainly in the immediate term, I think what will happen is that anti-abortionists will move into progressive states and target the clinics in them. And I would be really surprised if they didn't do so in a more aggressive way than we've seen in the last couple of years. Okay, Mian, thank you for that. We had a podcast a month ago called After Row, which considered what the effects would be of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. So do go back and have another listen to that. You can find it in the podcast feed. You can also find it in the notes for this episode. And I'm sure Mian will be back on Checks and Balance to talk about this again in the near future. Right, on to the January 6th committee. With round tinted glasses, an oversized collar, and sideburns reaching down to his jaw, John Lennon looked every bit the 70s pop star. Next to him, Yoko Ono waved her cigarette, and those around them craned their necks to stare. But that day, the musicians weren't the show. They were in the audience. The pair had come to the Capitol to watch the Senate Watergate hearings. Since we saw them on TV, we thought we'd take them in, Lennon said. When the hearings began, not a lot was known about the break-in and cover-up, and new witnesses brought fresh revelations. In his testimony, part of which the Lennons watched, former White House counsel John Dean said that he'd told President Nixon there was a cancer growing on the presidency. The hearings became a must-watch event. Each one of the 51 sessions was broadcast, and Nielsen reported that three out of four homes watched at least part of them. This week, a congressional committee warned of another cancer on the American body politic. But the House January 6th committee faces a different challenge to its predecessor half a century ago, keeping the nation's interest. I'm John Prideaux, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what have we learned from the January 6th committee? After conducting more than a thousand interviews and reviewing tens of thousands of documents, the committee is now presenting its findings. But a lot of what it's investigating happened publicly. The violence in the Capitol was gleefully live-streamed, and much of the conspiracy to overturn the election happened in the open. Democrats have tried before to use forensic hearings to push Republicans to abandon Trump, and failed each time. So how much of an impact can the committee have? With me to discuss this most Washington of topics, it's our DC duo, Idris Kaloon and James Astle. James writes the Lexington column. Idris, how are you doing and what's going on in DC? I'm doing well. I've recovered from a bout of COVID. Um, I got some good news yesterday, which is that my cousin, who was a police officer in New York, 
saved a woman's life. Um, she had a fit and she fell onto the track and, and he went down and he, he got her up. Um, and so he was on the news, which was really nice. That is very cool. Good for him. Yeah. And also the Senate has passed a gun control bill, which is something that we were a bit skeptical would happen, right? I mean, the received wisdom after Sandy Hook has been that Congress can't do anything on this. I know it's not the most consequential piece of legislation, but still, that's a hopeful sign, right? James, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. Thank you very much, John. Um, I'm enjoying DC's hot and humid early summer, which I love, actually. And James, you're also starting to think about your valedictory Lexington column. You've been writing the column since 2016. How's that coming along? I mean, so much has happened over the past five or six years. It's, it must be tough to try and squish all of that into, into a single column. Oh, most certainly, John. I don't think I'll, I'll try unless I were to focus on the single individual who has hung like a rank black cloud over my time as Lexington columnist. I'm essentially the Trump era economist man in DC. I arrived in, in DC when it was still considered a joke that Trump was sitting at the top of the Republican primary polling. Now, all the conversation is, is around whether the twice impeached former president will, will be the next president or will be in jail by the time of the 2024 election. So he's certainly been a dominant presence. I'm sort of toying with that, toying with something else. Well, let's talk about that single individual and his role in the January 6th riot, insurrection, whatever you want to call it. James, you've been watching the public hearings from the January 6th committee, uh, and you're kindly going to take us through them and pick, pick some highlights for listeners who might not have tuned in to every minute. The select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol will be in order. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Right from the we'll first hearing, the what the January 6th committee is trying to do is make a case that it's already established. So it's much more like a, an impeachment trial in that regard than it is like a regular investigative committee hearing. Finally, I ask all of our fellow Americans, as you watch our hearings over the coming weeks, please remember what's at stake. Remember the men and women who have fought and died so that we can live under the rule of law, not the rule of men. The committee has been very careful and I think quite effective in laying out its findings. And all we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at one o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. There are the cronies, the individuals who were doing Trump's bidding and trying to steal the election. And we know it's, it's the president's sort of personal legal team led by Rudy Giuliani, the legal scholar John Eastman, who had a bogus and illegal theory that Mike Pence, the vice president, could just choose almost by fiat not to certify the election results. The broad narrative that they're trying to establish is that this campaign by Trump to steal the election was not chaotic or, you know, a sort of haphazard system of discrete parts. Rather, it was a concerted and coordinated seven-part plan to steal the election. When one of those parts failed, starting, for example, with the basic misinformation campaign that Trump launched on election night, he would move on to the next stage, be it pressuring Mike Pence, the vice president, not to accept and to certify the election results. And then on the 5th, came in and 
I think it was probably his first words after introductions and as we sat down were, I'm here to request that you reject the electors in the disputed states. Pressuring state legislators to change their elector slates. And I said, look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. And I also swore to the Constitution and the laws of the state of Arizona. And this is totally foreign as a, an idea or a theory to me. And also to pressure the Justice Department to investigate and, and therefore somehow authenticate these bogus conspiracy theories. So at, at one point, he had raised the question of having a special counsel for election fraud. Uh, at a number of points, he raised uh, requests that I meet with his uh, campaign counsel, Mr. Giuliani. At one point, he raised the, um, whether the Justice Department would file a lawsuit in the Supreme Court. All of these were alternative efforts to bring about the same result, which is to say, a breakdown in the constitutional process to certify Joe Biden's election win and to supplant Trump somehow in its place. There have been a lot of powerful telling details. The committee dropped that a number of congressmen and other members of, of Trump's coterie had sought pardons after the January 6th insurrection. And was Representative Gates requesting a pardon? believe so. The, the general tone was, we may get prosecuted because we were defensive of, you know, the president's positions on these things. Clearly suggesting that they, they felt themselves to be in some legal jeopardy. But that said, most of what we've heard, we already knew or strongly suspected. What the committee has done is put together all of that evidence graphically and in a very organized fashion to support its its grand narrative, which is the criminal case against President Trump, ultimately. So tonight and over the next few weeks, we're going to remind you of the reality of what happened that day. But our work must do much more than just look backwards. Because of our democracy remains in danger, the conspiracy to thwart the will of the people is not over. Idris, I was going to ask what we've learned from the January 6th committee that we didn't know before, but it seems to me that's not really the exercise here. I mean, we knew what happened on January the 6th. So I wanted to ask you something different. What's really struck you from the hearings that you perhaps hadn't thought about so much before? You know, unlike the previous impeachments or some of the more contentious committee hearings that we've had in the past, the non-presence of dissenting Republicans has really made a difference. It is a sort of clear case that is being sketched out. It's essentially, you know, uh, a prosecution making its entire case over the course of a few days. And I think that there's a there's a dual purpose. There's a clear kind of prosecutorial impulse and laying out the breadcrumbs that the Department of Justice can pick up on to prosecute people in Trump's inner circle, maybe even Trump himself. I think some of the people on the committee hope. But there's also the political mandate of getting through to Republicans and explaining to them how very close to successful this coup was and how desperately Trump tried to cling to power in the hopes that this will break through 
to the Republican rank and file in a way that it really hasn't any other time we've attempted to do this. James, same question to you. What has particularly struck you from these hearings? Two quick things, John. One, the quality and the forcefulness of the conservative Republican, mostly Trump-appointed official um, witnesses that we have heard. There was a sort of rather skeptical sense that the committee would be able to produce powerful testimonies given that so many of Trump's inner circle had defied subpoenas or otherwise not cooperated with the committee. But actually to hear Bill Barr, uh, some of the other senior Justice Department uh, officials, um, one of Trump's campaign manager, others in the Trump circle, speak in a very kind of dispassionate, um, factual way about the kind of orders that they were getting, the mania that had seized Trump uh, and some of his corrupt cronies is very powerful. Uh, I think that the the evidence, therefore, the testimony, its power is better, more impactful than we might have expected. And then secondly, it really is sobering minute by minute hearing these hearings um, to reflect on just how close Trump and his cronies came to affecting the utter constitutional crisis and breakdown that they were they were seeking to affect. If we take just as one example of that, the, the clear possibility that the appointment of Jeffrey Clark, a maniacal junior official in the Justice Department who had bought in wholesale to this election lie. So Trump therefore tried to make him the acting attorney general. And, it, and had that happened, the Justice Department would have taken on Trump's lie, would have intervened in the election. And we came so close to that happening that the White House switchboard, we learn, was already describing this man, this totally unfit conspiracy theorist, as the acting attorney general. Had Trump-appointed Justice Department officials not resisted that en masse and, and said to Trump, the Justice Department will be a graveyard if you do this, all of its senior officials will leave. Had that not happened, then I think we would have been in serious crisis territory. Yeah, I mean, Clark wanted to send a pretty insane letter to Georgia telling them to convene a special session and essentially decertify their election results, right? And as you said, the the line was pretty close. It was those people in the Department of Justice. It was people like Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp in Georgia who resisted it. And it was Vice President Pence who also resisted any attempt to basically overturn the election result. But you see what the committee has done a very good job of is laying out the intensity of the pressure campaign basically at all levels of government. And even though we all live through it, and I think we're horrified at the time, I certainly have been sort of newly scandalized and newly horrified with the revelation of these additional details. Well, we will talk about the potential prosecutions that could come out of the committee in a moment. But first, if you're a fan of this podcast, I guarantee that you'd love a subscription to The Economist. It's the only way to read, watch and listen to everything we do. The latest weekly edition contains a particularly fine Lexington column from James outlining the problem that Democrats have with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the state of the contest to perhaps find an alternative in 2024. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. To find out about whether any high-level criminal prosecutions could come out of the information the committee is uncovering, I spoke to Dania Perry earlier this week. She's a former state and federal prosecutor and co-author of a report from Brookings about this very subject. 
there were thousands of people on January the 6th who stormed and breached the Capitol building, and hundreds of them have been prosecuted. What the Department of Justice has started to do is to go up the chain and look at people who may not even have been on site on January 6th, but who were kind of around and who were directing and conspiring. And certainly the January 6th has been focusing in part for sure on all manner of fraud, but they certainly seem to be circling in on the possibility of actors who were involved in the so-called seditious conspiracy. So the violence we saw on January the 6th, some of that is being prosecuted, but in terms of the main charges here, or potential charges, I suppose, which are those relating to a conspiracy, that's a kind of plot that involves two or more people. To defraud the US is a, a crime that Donald Trump plus one other could possibly be charged with, and that that word defraud, at least you, you write in the Brookings report you've co-authored, has been understood by courts quite broadly. So it's not the case that that defrauding would have to be a question of money. Can you tell us a little bit about that charge, that conspiracy to defraud charge, how difficult that is to prosecute, how likely a prosecution seems? In our report, we wrote that we believe that would be the main charge. This is kind of the standard charge, and it is kind of bread and butter for the Department of Justice. And you're exactly right, John. The object of the fraud does not have to be financial. All that the government would need to show is that at least two people entered into an agreement with the intent to obstruct the lawful function of government. Here, that's just the counting of the electoral votes and the peaceful transfer of power. And they did it by some form of dishonest means. So knowing that Mike Pence did not have the right to unilaterally overturn the results of the election, still trying to persuade him to do it. So even if that conspiracy is not ultimately successful, the mere attempt would be enough as a matter of law. Would you expect the committee to make a recommendation to the Department of Justice on whether to prosecute? You know, I think there's been a little bit of confusion in public discourse around the significance of a referral. The committee does not have to refer anything to the Department of Justice, whether they think or that charges should flow or not, but they don't need to make a formal referral. Department of Justice, you know, I recall when I was at the DOJ and we would read something in the newspaper, some investigative reporting, and we'd say, wow, looks like some fraud there, and then we would pursue it. So if the Department of Justice is watching, as they no doubt are, and they see something that gives them you know, pause at, at a minimum, then they're free to pursue that and should pursue that in the normal course. How much of the case against Donald Trump turns on showing that he knew that he was lying? Because one of the things that was so hard about covering the Trump presidency was that it wasn't obvious to me, at least, that he knows when he's lying and when he's not. I mean, he's somebody who seems to you know, seek out bad information that fits with what he wants to be true and doesn't have any real interest in finding out what's actually true. I mean, therefore, with somebody who seems such a stranger to the truth, it's quite hard to prove that they know they're lying. But maybe that's irrelevant in this case. That's, it's just such an interesting question because 
often there's a defense of lack of knowledge, of course, right? That that must be proven by the government that there's criminal intent, meaning they know not only what they're doing, but they know that it's wrong or unlawful. Here, we've heard testimony that would almost suggest that whether he knew or not, he did not care. And it would seem almost to form the boundaries of a defense. But the law has an answer for that. The law requires knowledge or it's equivalent. (laughs) And the equivalent is what's known as conscious avoidance. It's also known as willful blindness or the head in the sand defense or the ostrich defense. It really is, you cannot put your head in the sand and avoid knowing that which is obvious. So if everyone around him, even John Eastman, the most passionate advocate in favor of this theory that Pence could unilaterally overturn the election. So if every single person around Trump was saying, you can't do this, if he says to himself or even out loud, well, you all say I can't, but I'm just going to, you know, say that I, I think I can. I just think I can. That is not a defense. James, none of the three of us are lawyers, but we've all spent a good deal of time reading the legal commentary around the January the 6th committee and the potential criminal case against Donald Trump. What do you think of the strength or or weakness of that case? Well, we had a a very good basic guide, John, of the charges that the committee is punching at uh, and at least a sort of cursory legal response to the committee on this. Um, from some court documents uh, a couple of months ago, which concerned the committee's effort to get hold of legal documents from the Trump campaign. They'd been resisted in in this, and they made an argument that they needed to have those uh, documents, that client uh, attorney privilege, which was the argument that the Trump team had used to deny them, did not pertain in this case because the Trump team were using legal advice to commit crimes. And the crimes that the committee felt were being committed were a a conspiracy to defraud the the United States, uh, an effort to impede an official proceeding. And the federal district judge in in California, who was asked to rule on that matter, the matter of whether the committee should have access to those documents from the Trump legal team, that judge said that yes, based on his view of the case, which is not a criminal view of the case, it's not a case of proving the case against Trump, you know, beyond all reasonable doubt, different burden of proof. But nonetheless, prima facie, he felt that uh, Trump was guilty of those federal crimes. And on that basis, he refused to uphold uh, the Trump legal team's effort to withhold those documents from the committee. So that was an enormous clue, an enormous steer, and a provisional legal reading of the committee's case. And it has excited a huge amount of legal commentary, much of it, I think, quite excitably encouraging the idea that Trump could be convicted in a criminal case against him on those measures. You know, there is, there's an even more excited conversation around whether he could be convicted of sedition, as some of the militia leaders um, who were instrumental on January the 6th, have, they've been charged with, 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 with those crimes. Um, I think that's in the sky, that's absolutely not going to happen. Idris, whether or not the Department of Justice could get a conviction were it to choose to prosecute him, there's a debate around whether it should. 
And this is something we've talked about before. You know, Donald Trump broke a norm by not accepting the election results. The Department of Justice under a Democratic president would break another norm were it to choose to prosecute a former president and somebody who could well be the current president's rival in 2024. Where where do you stand on that debate? I have to confess, I think it's really finely balanced. Um, I think there's a good reason that there is a very high bar against prosecuting your presidential predecessor. But in this case, the scheme that Donald Trump tried to enact would have basically broken the American system of democracy and it would have ended the constitutional order. And I think that there should be consequences for that. The, the best consequences would be for the Republican Party to realize how abhorrent this behavior was and to reject him. And, you know, we wouldn't have to, to think about the prosecution of, of it itself. I think on the prosecution side, it's a tougher case to make. We don't know to what extent the Department of Justice is investigating Trump himself. But I think that the best case that could be made against Trump directly uh, might not come from the Department of Justice and might come from this investigation going on in Georgia over his exhortation of Brad Raffensperger to just find 11,780 votes that would be needed to overturn the election result. I mean, in that case, that doesn't seem like a sincere belief in the existence of fraud that seems like just get me enough so that, you know, cut me a break, as he says to Raffensperger. Um, and there, there are pretty strict laws in Georgia about um, encouraging an elections officer to act corruptly, which I think that was. So I, I think the best case might, might end up there. But, you know, there, there is a very high bar and there's a good reason for that. But I think that Trump's conduct over the last election more than clears it. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the political effects of the committee's hearings. Idris, you've been trying to figure out what the political ramifications of the committee's hearings will be. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found out? One of the people I asked uh, about this very important question was Sarah Longwell, who is a longtime friend of the podcast and a host of her own called The Focus Group, in which she goes and talks to uh, largely Trump voters about their assessment of American politics. And uh, her recent findings as the hearings were going on were fairly interesting. One of the things that I say about the focus groups all the time is that the the chasm between what we are often talking about in Washington and what regular people are talking about is so evident in the focus groups. And so I've actually been pleased to see that everybody is aware of the hearings, even if they think that they're a dog and pony show. I find that sort of reassuring that it is breaking through in the national conversation. The big question that I have, is there any evidence that this is getting through to Republican voters in the way that the people running the committee might hope? Look, I think it depends on what you mean by getting through. I think there's a lot of different audiences for this hearing. I think one audience is kind of a lot of my old friends among the conservative uh, literati, the National Review crowd, a lot of the people who spent the last two years trying to sort of tamp down, you know, the idea that January 6th was as big a deal as it is. And I think that Among that crowd, one of the things that's been so interesting to me about these hearings is how smart they have been about who the messengers are. It is chock full of rock-ribbed conservatives. Uh, You know, for example, Judge Michael Luddig, he is a a god among the Federalist Society, a sort of powerful conservative lawyer set. And so, you know, I think that things like that are very meaningful. Now, the question of whether or not Trump voters are going to be glued to these hearings and, you know, recasting their opinions, I think is is very unlikely. If 
Fox News, I had noticed, though, is now carrying these live. Um, and, and one of the things that I was sort of finding interesting in the focus groups that I do regularly with Trump voters, and I've done two since the hearings have been going on, I got to tell you, there's just one interesting piece of anecdata that I, I want to share, which is in every focus group I have done of Trump voters since January 6th, I always ask, who do you want to see run in 2024? And almost always, about half says Trump, sometimes more, very seldom less. And it's been one of the most consistent things across the focus groups. In the last two groups we've done since this hearing, both groups have had zero people who want to see him run again. And I don't think it's because they're watching the hearings and they've been persuaded. I think that it is likely possible that there is something going on where voters who like Trump, they're not done liking Trump, they still think it's a dog and pony show, but it sort of says, you know, oh my gosh, this is like a lot of work, you know, defending this guy. They start to feel, oh, you know, do I have to go through this again? And so, you know, there, there was a lot of talk in the last focus group about how they wanted to move on from January 6th. We should just move on. But they also seem to sort of want to move on from Trump. And so I do feel like it's having some impact on the broader conversation that could shape politics going forward. And the sort of central destabilizing lie of all this that Democrats stole the election. If you look at polling, you see 70% of Republicans say, yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's been consistent since January 6th and even before. Um, to what extent is that a sincere belief when you talk to people in the focus groups? Or has it become a marker of Republican fealty? Yeah, that's such a good question because it's funny. It's something that they believe sincerely but carry kind of lightly. Uh, it's much more of a tribal pose, a way to say, well, Dems cheat. I know Democrats cheat. And it's a way that Republicans signal to each other that they're on the team and that they all hate Democrats and that Democrats are as corrupt as they all think they are. But it's not like anybody's bringing much evidence to the table. Um, I hear voters say many versions of why they believe the election was stolen. One that I hear all the time is, I went to bed uh, election night and Donald Trump was winning. I woke up in the morning and Joe Biden was winning. How do you explain that? And, you know, if you try to explain, well, they counted more votes overnight, um, that is not a satisfactory answer. And so, you know, again, it is that tribal pose, but it's the kind of thing that you can see dissipating <laughs> once sort of Donald Trump is no longer there telling everybody the election was stolen all the time. You know, we, we've had two impeachments before, and I, and, I, and I think Democrats have had this theory that if they do make the case very well to the American public, as they are doing now, that there will be this sort of moment of, of reconsideration and perhaps, you know, movement away from, from Trump. But those moments happened, they passed, and the party was just as close to Trump as before. To what extent do you think that this might be a temporary lull in the sort of affection that voters have for, for Donald Trump? Yeah, I think that's very possible. There's been no doubt that I have seen this movie before. Although one phenomenon that's very sort of trackable over the years with Trump is that he seems to pull better, his favorables are higher, the more he recedes from the public imagination. When he is replaced front and center for people, his his numbers tend to go down because people remember why they were kind of sick of this guy in the first place. And so I think you're right that there's something temporary about it. I also think that it's very important. You know, there's a big narrative out there about, well, is Trump's grip on the party slipping? And I don't think that even if, 
you know, the enthusiasm for his run in 2024 was waning. I would still not argue one bit that his grip on the Republican Party is slipping because there is Trump the person. And then there's Trump the phenomenon and the force on the party. And when you look across the races in 2022, they are extremely Trumpy, both in their affect and in the messages that they're running on, which is basically that the election was stolen. Trump is kind of metastasized across the entire party so that the entire party looks a lot more like him, regardless of whether he's there or not. Idris, my heart skipped a beat when Sarah Longwell started talking about Republican voters in focus groups being willing to move on from Trump. That sounds too good to be true. What do you think? I think it might be too good to be true. You know, in uh, in polls, there's this phenomenon, which is kind of a gross term called differential non-response. But the idea is that whenever your guy's having a bad week, you tend not to respond to pollsters. And you tend not to say what you think. You just you just turn down the phone because you don't really want to think about politics that week. I wonder if something similar might be happening with the sort of most Trump-supporting members of, of focus groups. But nonetheless, I think that if you cast your eye over the state of the Republican Party as evidenced by the primaries, you don't really get a sense that, that Trump is going away. For one, um, his endorsement seems to matter quite a lot. The candidates are certainly... Uh, falling over one another to court him and, and get his endorsement. But also, if you look at the fact that is association with January 6th a liability or a boon to your chances of winning a Republican primary, so far they've been a boon. Um, all across the country, people who have actively participated in the events of January 6th have run for, for primary nominations that they've won. Doug Mastriano has won the nomination to be Pennsylvania governor. A fellow in Michigan named Ryan Kelly uh, has been running to be governor there. He was arrested by the FBI for some misdemeanor charges over his participation in January 6th, and the latest polling suggests that he got a boost from that. Contrast that with the two Republican members on the January 6th committee, Representatives Kinzinger and Cheney. Uh, Kinzinger is retiring, um, and Cheney is facing a very uphill battle to keep her, her nomination. So I'm hopeful that this is a, an inflection point for the party, but you know people have hoped that many times before. I, I continue to be pessimistic and worry that the Republican Party that will emerge in the coming months will be one that is more in the mold of, of January 6th Republicans and, and Trumpism than less. James, the strength of Donald Trump's attachment to Republican voters and their attachment to him has been one of the great themes of the hundreds of Lexington columns you've written over the past few years. Do you share Idris's views on this, or do you think there's a bit of daylight emerging or sufficient daylight emerging between Donald Trump and the Republican base for us to seriously contemplate somebody else being the nominee in 2024? I think there are contradictory signals. Uh, I broadly agree with Idris, but the two things are happening at once. One's the Trump base, which is the largest constituency on the right, is hardening around Trump, is being radicalized ever increasingly around the January 6th heist, the stolen election lie. But at the same time, I think there are some signs of a sort of winnowing of Trump enthusiasm at the edge of the coalition. There was a lot of excitement this week around a poll from New Hampshire, which showed that Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, um, was preferred by Republicans in New Hampshire over Trump. We've not seen a poll result like that before. If I had to put 
money on it, then I would I would go with what the Republican establishment thinks, which is that Trump's a shoe in for the nomination if he wants to run again. You know, don't think that that's cut and dried. Don't think it's an absolute dead cert, but that's clearly the likeliest outcome, I think. One of the people who testified really powerfully, Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, who talked really compellingly about how his personal faith and oath to the Constitution prevented him from going along with the plot to decertify Arizona's election result. You know, he said in an interview that if Trump were the nominee in 2024, he'd still vote for him. Yes, despite the fact that he said he's also had big lie conspiracists accuse him falsely of being a pedophile and making his life a misery. Yeah. And so even even him, he's, he's going to vote for Trump in 2024 if he's the nominee. You know, we're all kind of gnarled and calloused by the force of Republican tribal spirit. You know, so many opportunities to break with Trump have not been taken. But American politics is a game of tiny margins right now. And Trump only needs to finally alienate a small portion of the Republican coalition for his prospects to look very different in a general election or conceivably even in a Republican primary election. And I do think that question is still a little bit open. So, Drees, we've had two Donald Trump impeachments, unsuccessful impeachments. We have this January 6th committee, which has gone over events that we, you know, we knew about at the time. It hasn't, to my mind, uncovered a whole load of new evidence. It has reminded us quite how bad it was, and maybe we needed that reminder. Some people listening to this might say, well, what's the point of the whole thing? If it's not going to move Republican voters' feelings towards Donald Trump much, if it's you know, maybe not going to result in any conviction. Why go through this whole exercise anyway? I think I think it might move some Republican voters, but I think also that uh, the campaign that Donald Trump led to overturn his electoral defeat is, I think, a fairly monumental black stain on, on the American Republic. And in previous moments like that, like Watergate or 9-11, you know, Congress has often created these sorts of committees to research them and and publish definitive accounts of, of what happened and what went wrong in the hope that this might not happen again. I think it is it is important just for historical reasons, absent all the sort of political considerations of the day, to do this sort of undertaking. I'm a bit more upbeat about the, the purpose and I think performance of the committee than perhaps you both are. I, I think that for four reasons, these hearings are really important. One, because I think we have learned interesting new details. And more to the point, with the benefit of those details, I think that the committee has been quite effective in drawing this grand narrative of an election stealing plot. I think that's been very powerful. I think that there is indeed some possibility of this having political impact in terms of Trump standing on the right, but especially his standing in the event that he fights another general election. I think this could be damaging for him if he were the Republican nominee taking on a Democrat. I think that thirdly, the legal case against Trump has clearly got stronger as a result of these hearings. And then just fourthly, let's look at what Congress is doing here. The core principle of the Trump election, attempted election heist was an attack on democratic institutions, institutions which are already assailed in so many ways the loss of of deference, their own malfunction, the very poor opinions that Americans have of them. And Congress, with its gridlock, has has done all all it can in recent years to fulfill its terrible press. But 
Congress is an institution which in moments like these is charged with, with, with rising to an occasion um, to perform a certain institutional duty to, to investigate for the American people the circumstances of an appalling public crisis, maybe crime. And I think it's doing that quite effective. So sort of thumbs up to a, to a, a besieged and very, very important in, institution too. Well, it's very nice after watching those hearings to end on an optimistic note. Before I let you guys go, it's quiz time. Though the events of January the 6th were unique, American politics is no stranger to investigations and charges of fraud and corruption. And the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant was, of course, particularly bad for them. It was so bad that in 1876, The Economist expressed surprise at people who were surprised at corruption. The paper wrote that, it's not easy to understand the indignation and virtuous perplexity of the party men at Washington who have been shocked by the discovery that a member of the cabinet has been accused of taking bribes. Question. One scandal under Grant was the whiskey ring, a conspiracy of tax collectors and whiskey distillers in the Midwest. What happened for the first time in the investigation of that scandal? If you need a hint, it was something that was later repeated in the Iran-Contra and also the Whitewater affairs. Creation of a special council, I guess. Yeah, it was the cover-up, not the crime. <laughs> it usually is. Idris is correct. It was the appointment of a federal special prosecutor. President Grant did then undermine his special prosecutor's efforts, both by firing the first one and then by volunteering as a witness for the defence in a subsequent trial. Of course, in Grant's period, whiskey wasn't just used for tax fraud. It was increasingly being used for cocktails or fancy drinks, as they were often then known. Question two. Why did bartenders have to be careful when making one famous drink from the time, the Blue Blazer? Probably because they were lighting it on fire. Um, yeah, it sounds like a flammable fancy drink is the right answer. According to the 1862 Bartender's Guide by Jerry Thomas, the drink of scotch whiskey and boiling water should be set alight and then poured between two silver-plated mugs four or five times. Mr Thomas writes, If well done, this will have the appearance of a continued stream of liquid fire. He advised practising it with cold water first. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, James. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, Dom. Great, thank you. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz with research by Elizabeth Pete. The sound engineer is Nico Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have a newsletter of the same name, economist.com slash newsletters is the place to sign up for the Checks and Balance newsletter. But you can get in touch with us about the podcast via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. 